boys who would be critics. This week we're discussing Jordan Peele's Us, and we're following it up with 1990s To Sleep With Anger, a film starring Danny Glover. Um, Damoon is joining me. You are already pointing your finger, so you have something to add. You should mention the director, Charles Burnett, in your introduction of To Sleep With Anger. What is significant about Charles Burnett? He is an incredibly underappreciated African-American filmmaker who's just finally getting his due. He also did one of the greatest student films of all time, Killer Sheep. And he also did The Glass Shield in 94 with Ice Cube. And he's actually coming out with a new film that has a really cool premise, but it's about um, a slave ship. It's a true story that was commandeered by slaves. No, a a Confederate ship that was commandeered by slaves, and they took it up, I think, either the Mississippi or the Atlantic Ocean to Union and gave them the ship. I believe I have heard this story. They actually had to, like, they had to, and they were doing, it was like a night voyage, so they had to, like, pose as as Southern Confederates throughout the, whenever they would encounter other ships, yeah. Charles Burnett, unfortunately, never had uh, a vivacious career in terms of exposure, unfortunately. But to watch *The Sleep with Anger*, I have so much to say with *Sleep with Anger*. All right. Well, I will be yeah glad to hear from all of it. We're first, of course, talking about Jordan Peele's *This Is Up Us*. Uh, <laughs> Jordan Peele's *Us*, not in any way connected to the TV show *This Is Us*. Um, I don't know how much we really even need to get into the plot details of this. This is, was a well, well and widely seen film. If you are listening to the podcast on this two weeks after it has come out way beyond the point where this would be, like, immediately relevant for people who have not seen it. Uh, I'm just going to assume you uh, you uh, you were a fan of the film and want to, and just want to dive, wants to dive right in. So, what were your thoughts? Are you talking to them or me? No. I never talk to them. They never talk back. Well, they have, what, your tethered people that just in a basement somewhere that you're not acknowledging and they'll never talk back to you because they can't speak? I mean, if they were in a basement somewhere, those would be helpful because it would mean they existed. But let's get into us. Sure. Us. That was a movie, wasn't it? A good one at that. I'm really curious to know what Jordan Peele drafted this. After I watched Us, I spent the last like week or two binging through Key and Peele because I've never seen it before. Oh, yeah? And it's interesting because it's really good that... you come. Like, I mentioned this about like horror directors really good at action because they have the set pieces and you have to work in like minimal spaces. Mm-hmm. But the other inverse can be said about like working with comedy could work really well with horror because comedy is all about timing and horror is all about timing. And I think he took kind of those influences about any other really... This film isn't as scary as people make it out to be. I mean, no one made it out to be to be scary. Let's, there is one moment that's pretty terrifying, but there are some hum, there are some humorous moments that kind of undercut those kind of that tension. There are kind of tonal shifts in it that, for the most part, I think work. Um, I'm just fascinated to know where his career goes. There's nothing quite like this movie. I feel to me personally, I've mentioned this in two reviews previously that I've done for it in written form that it kind of reminds me of like '80s anti-consumer film stuff, like um, stuff like the stuff and the burbs or society, or people under the stairs. It's very much kind of reminiscent of these anti-consumerist, anti-capitalistic kind of messages, in particular with people literally living underground. And there are some other elements that I want to get into, but we'll get into that later. Those are my first thoughts. I thought of, I like a movie that's a little bit longer, that you don't get the type of runtime anymore, which allows the first act to kind of breathe and the third act to kind of breathe. Everyone did a fantastic job. Obviously, the Peter Nyong'o just killed it. Beyond killed it. She is amazing. I mean, it's embarrassing that she won an Oscar, and between now and then, she only had one, like, starring role, which was Queen of Katuya, the one by Miranar. Uh, You'd almost yeah. think that there was nothing controversial at all about Jordan Peele talking about casting exclusively yeah. black actors in his leading roles, yeah, because you know, there's black, just not enough roles. Yeah, because, you know, Af- African-Americans managed to get the same opportunities as white people in America. There's no, like, yeah. It's just, you, yeah, it's, it's such a empty controversy that I'm amazed it was controversial, because I've said this personally. You've been at a meeting with me. And I've talked about like how I've wanted to primarily deal with 
minority than kind of filmed and casting and also in my career as well. And I don't think there's anything controversial about that, but anyone will find angry nowadays. No, but the internet exists just for people to be mad at stuff. Um, I'm really glad you brought up uh, the people under the stairs because I remember reading when reading up on this film, I realized Jordan Peele actually did. I want to believe it was through a, a New York uh, New York City theater. I could be wrong about which city, but he was able to host like of like he was programmed like a small uh, like a week of like a week long retrospective on social horror that included things like the Stepford Wives, uh, Rosemary's Baby, and most of them were pretty mainstream. But he also did slip in the People Under the Stairs, which is a much lesser known yeah. social commentary film that deals with gentrification made by Wes Craven. I don't, I wouldn't certainly wouldn't put it on that level, but it is in that kind of rare breed of social commentary films. The thing that you also touched on that I'm like, yeah, absolutely agree with is just the sheer level of imagination in this film. There is very little to compare this to. I know people have made references to like certain cinematic tro- uh, styles and like some shot references, mm-hmm. but there is no plot, there is no narrative equivalent of this film where you're like, oh yeah, they're totally paying homage to this. The way when we talked yeah. about Hereditary and we're like, this film is paying homage to a lot of stuff. It has like a wide breadth of like cinema knowledge. This is someone who's really like throwing out a whole lot of new dice and and playing cards that I haven't seen before and it was really impressive in that regard and you can like the thing is you can a lot of people have been complaining about certain elements in terms of I'm gonna hate using those words but plot holes and uh, logic but there's an element of absurd in this where it's not supposed to, elements that are not supposed to be taken literally and talk of the third act and people use that as an objective measure to say oh the film faltered in the third act because logically some of this stuff didn't make sense I'm like excuse me these are clones who also are shadow-tethered to people above the ground who've been abandoned for 30 years that managed to live on rabbits. Of course there's no logic in it, but people, we live in a hyper-literal world, even though it makes no sense, because our world doesn't make any sense, but people want to try to find anything to tether or tie things together, and that was kind of really annoying. Tether? Yeah, ha But I'm so exhausted with this kind of narrative, and it was nice to see a film that's like, well, okay, you kind of accept it or you don't accept it, and it was nice to see a film that kind of didn't take it it's almost like it's very european or you want to call it avant-garde but in a way where you don't have to take it in a literal or narrative fashion and you could pick all those plot holes apart because we love doing that as a form of criticism or certain people are doing that as a form of criticism nowadays but it's kind of like pick proof in my opinion of that sort of thing because it's very upfront about these sort of things and there are a lot like to me i'll get into what influences or what themes that are apparent to me later if you are we can get into yep. them now no, there's we, yeah there's time happily responded like the element of like plot holes because i have I feel like in some ways, like, this is just such an irrelevant argument. You can literally, no time travel movie should ever exist. Yeah. Because it will always, it always comes with a plot hole. This is, a, this is stuff that, yeah. Do you, would you want a film that kind of, like, tries to, like, it's almost like there are critiques that came at Lost at the end, uh, when that series was over. And I never really got into Lost. I kind of thought they were jerking everyone around. Mm-hmm. But... Could you imagine how boring it would be if they tried to, like, if the series finale of that show was trying to answer every question that the show set up? In the same way, like, who wants to, like, have another 25 minutes to try and, like, figure out a logical reason for this lab to exist and get into the macro details of, like, are they tethered for every country? Is it just the city of, like, which city are they in? They're in California. I forget. They're on Venice Beach, I think, or Santa Cruz. It was one of the two. Somewhere in California. Yeah, so I have no idea if there's tethered to, like, the people in New York City. These questions seem entirely irrelevant to me what what matters is the is the is the structure and the narrative rules that it sets up within itself make sense and there's a clear understanding of who these people are why they want to kill these other people and where it gets loose is how many how many equivalents and doubles there are whether that extends to all of america or whether this is like a narrow micro micro incident 
doesn't really change the actual like stakes and the beats of like your family is in peril how are you going to survive in that regard everything in this film is set up so well in terms of like just the structural elements of of setting up a gun reminding the audience and then firing it it does this jordan peele does this so well again and again the first act sets up so many like small things between like the boat not starting and then paying it off between oh do you have a flare gun and then paying the flare gun off between setting up the uh the two uh, the two relationships between the uh Lupita Nyong'o and her family and Elizabeth Moss's family. Yeah. All this stuff is just because it has a nice long first act. It sets up all these things and within the rules of the thriller for the most part, I think it plays by its own rules. The only time I thought there was like a moment of confusion for me maybe was when we got to the moment where the kid was able to figure out that the other child, the child who is a pyro- pyromaniac, yeah. is he figures out that it's a trap, which is clever and that made sense. But then it all it's it's a it's a bit of a moment I don't even necessarily object to it because I rolled with it in the punches, but I don't know how to like explain how the child is then able to manipulate the child into them walking backwards into the fire. Because it seems like they just go, because they're tethered, they almost like repeat each other's motion. Yeah. That was the only moment where I went like, I'm not entirely sure how that worked or what the uh, what the internal logic of that was, but I was invested with the film, and every now and then you get a gimme, I think. No, it's, I think that's one of the things that you could tie. Also the thing with like think the good thing that paid back is with Moth talking about her... Um... Her li- her doing her boy talk, her life with actually yeah, the face, but in, so and then it, and then it pays off later with her doppelganger putting all the makeup on and doing all that stuff. As like, and also having cut marks yeah. in this like you may, you might not see it the first time around, but she has little cut marks in the same part where Elizabeth Moss yeah. talks about, oh, you like it? I got the work done right here by my cheek, just a little yeah. tuck. Yeah, it's yeah, it's, there's yeah. So that's one of the things I don't like. There's references in every character's name, which is one thing I really want to talk about, actually, it's a good segue now. To me, like, one of the theories that I kind of want to put off that I haven't heard much about here and there, but primarily what drew me to the film is that there is some good, re- like, interesting references. You can read, like, the first time I read about this, like, first time, I've only seen this film once, and these are, like, the first notes I've had in my head I've ruminated on, I have not seen them yet. Again. <clears throat> Again. So these are just some interesting things that I've noticed. I, to me, the most fascinating theory is about uh, tying this film into either Alice in Wonderland, also simultaneously uh, through the Looking Glass, the sequel, because there is a literal point at one time, spoilers, where she literally follows the rabbit down the rabbit hole. There are tons of through the Looking Glass references everywhere. Which ones? Just literal glasses. Her face being pressed on the glass. Her looking at the glass and the mirrors, things like that. Okay. Uh, and the most important thing is that in the sequel, not in the first one, I think it's the Queen of Hearts is the villain, but in through the Looking Glass, the villain is. Um, literally called the Red Queen. And I want to talk about the parallels between the Red and the Red Queen and that. They're both simultaneously leaders of their respective communities. Red, Red Queen. They both wear red. Even Red's hair is kind of like shaped in like a misshapen crown of, of sorts, almost. And there's some elements where like the most important thing is that like um, Red very moves really reminiscent to like the Red Queen, actually, in Through Looking Glass. And she mentioned that it moves like both swiftly and gracefully, which is exactly kind of like Red's movements mm-hmm. in the script. Like, and the other interesting thing is like the Red Queen believe that you have to move twice as fast to get wherever you are. And that's very, like, reminiscent to kind of you on tech, the tether to the working class and, like, modern-day anxiety with late-stage capital. You have to work twice as hard to get where everyone in the previous generation was or people who are above you in terms of, like, the 1% or things like that. So I found that really cool. And, like, even the end fight theme, you could almost look at it 
as a dance match, but also as a chess match, there's almost an element of like moving across the board sort of thing. There's almost mm-hmm. like a okay. tactile, tactile mental quality to it. Like to beat her, she almost has to like outthink or outmaneuver, right? And her movements are very similar to like the queen in chess. She can move kind of wherever she wants to be because she's the only one that's not untethered in a way. She's very much the queen of the rest of them are pawns, right? And she kind of has to move from one, from one, from the pawn to the queen. And she also has that, the red queen also has that thing. She also mentioned that. And the interesting thing about that is like, there's also the there's a rabbit in through the uh, through looking glass and or sorry in Alice in Wonderland the rabbit himself mentions a poem that's all about kind of generational gaps and divides and not understanding the old generation the previous generation which kind of foreshadows up in the end when the son looks at his mother and realizes he doesn't quite understand her it's not fully her spoilers and I thought that kind of paid off in an interesting way so I thought that was one of the interesting elements but also because if this film like to me ties into capitalism because there's a lot of capitalistic and consumerist messaging kind of to me bur- burrowed in there. There is this moment where I think Alice in Wonderland is kind of looking at Victorian era in England and industrial England and kind of the royalty and the hyper acceleration of that sort of stuff, like the beginning point of modern, what we consider modern day capitalism, like industrial revolution, Victoria age to me is like the beginning of modern day capitalism. We start getting into communism after that as a, as a fight against it or fascism and yeah, so it's interesting to bring it all the back and this book kind of brought out those elements of it because there's almost an anarchy, loose element to Alice in Wonderland as well with the whole dinner party, with the whole, like, tea party because people are doing whatever they wanted and they can do whatever they want. There's tons of also black flag references in Us, which is also dealing with anarchy, which is an anarchist band, quote-unquote. So ton of those little moments here and there I found really interesting. Well, Jordan Peele between this and Get Out has really done a clinic in how horror can essentially take what are otherwise very academic and non-literal points of, of life in society mm-hmm. and make them visceral. Yeah. And what this book, film and hearing you discuss, it actually brought me back and reminded me of a book that I read called The Colony in a Nation by Chris Hayes, which is a really great, really simple, accessible book. Yeah. Um, and it was pulled from a Richard Nixon quote that described the colony as like, it was not in any ways an endearing term, it was meant to describe uh, the existence of African Americans uh, I think in a more particularly blaming sense of why their why their lives are essentially outside of, of the white lives. And of course, Richard Nixon, a very racist president yeah. who wanted to maintain the colony. He drunkly tried to, like, nuclear bomb Laos and <laughs> someone to, like, walk him off the ledge. Side point. But but the whole dichotomy of, Chris, of, of the book, which is written by a white guy who grew up in Brooklyn and, you know, relative wealth and privilege and still, you know, I think quite wealthy now. He's an MSNBC host. host. But, the, but the duality of all the safety and security that those of us in the nation are meant to expect is built on the suffering and the exclusion of others, which is almost the literal tie-in of what the tethered are in this film. This is every experience you have, everything that brought you joy was at the same time bought and paid for by the suffering of someone else. Now, you can tie this into a million different ways between class and America. You can look at it how uh, globalism, or excuse me, capitalism on a global scale um, provides us with numerous products and things maybe some computers that we're recording this podcast on, that are made for, in part, with various degrees of human suffering yeah. and various degrees of human labor exploitation. There's And there's no way to ethically live around that. Mm-hmm. And we are all, by virtue, guilty of that. And yeah. this is these are things that are, you know, uncomfortable, hard to explain. But, you know... Uh, this film really makes takes that and makes it makes it present. 
and puts it puts it right out there in, in front in plain view and the horrors are there to look at yeah there's so this is the other thing i want to tie into there's actually a theory in evolution that's actually called the red queen hypothesis hypothesis okay. that i was researching this and it's actually about like in evolution you have to evolve twice as fast or you become obsolete or extinct and people have now kind of tied it into capitalism like late stage capital in the well you have to work twice as fast or twice as hard so you keep going forward so you're not kind of left behind Again, very much similar to the tethered art. And that's kind of like what ties in this film with this economic, quote-unquote, anxiety between um, Gabe's character, who's the father of the Wilsons, played by Winston Duke, who also did a fantastic job, and the guy who I think his name is Tyler. I know his doppelganger's text, who played by Tim Heidecker, did a fantastic job. But there's almost like this toxic masculinity dueling between the two, right? Where, like, he got a boat, but it's not as good enough as the, the White family's boat. He's trying to provide for his family, but it's not quite there. He's trying to keep up in the twice, going twice fast, but he necessarily can't, because then the guy, like, demonishes him and kind of belittles and chastises him, and be like, well, did you get a flare? And then he didn't get a flare. And then also mentioning how, like, oh, he has a backup generator. Oh, he has, like, the theory generator. Uh, rip off. But the interesting thing is, in the film, the things that are considered lesser and poorer, their defaults are what saves the family as opposed to the fam. So look at, like, the boat craps out, veers left, saves them. Just saves his life. Same as the engine defaulting. If the engine didn't default and the guy didn't hit it again, he wouldn't have gone to the battle and beat him. If the engine didn't default again, he wouldn't have killed the guy because it was, he had to hit the engine to have it start up, right? Like, in an orthodox way to kill his doppelganger. Same thing with, like, the door in, like, the kid. He... There's no fancy lock on the door. He literally uses a truck, and if it wasn't because of that, the fam, Adelaide, and the also, son couldn't get also away. Also wonderfully set up from a storytelling standpoint yeah. in Act 1. Same as, like, the power. It goes out. They're automatically aware that something's wrong. If they had a backup generator, they necessarily wouldn't have. Like, look what happens in the family. When the power goes out, the wife doesn't. The wife does notice, but he Meanwhile, doesn't. Meanwhile, the white family gets just massacred. But, yeah, this is it. But, like, they notice... He notices the power. He doesn't notice the power goes off. He keeps fighting about his wife because the backup generator mm-hmm. immediately kicks on. The Alexa ripoff doesn't call the cops to the detriment of them. It plays the please by um yeah, by them. There's another for element them. Yeah, by by sorry, NWA. By so there's another one in there that I wanted to oh my god. The oh and the flare gun. Combo, yeah. yeah the flare gun is supposed to be this fancy thing. It doesn't work. It like almost like emasculates him by like going off pitifully and then he has to fight him with his hands. There's a reoccurring thing about like how these things that are supposed to be consumerist um excellence and above the rest of the other things in a quote-unquote lesser forms fail habitually and because they fail it's to the detriment and the death of that family but the shitty things are what saves them the other family which i found really interesting but ties into like the element of like we've tied consumerism to be a part of our identity and part of our personality but it's not probably a good thing because i like i grew up in like we grew up in canada in particular ontario where a lot of people in ontario who have older parents in a Generation X or baby boomers who will continuously buy, like, houses, and the houses become a personality of them. They don't, like, enrich themselves. They enrich the houses so their property value can go up. Like, the amount of times they can go home for Christmas or Easter break and people are like, oh, look off my new bathroom. Like, it's an extension of themselves. And you have to, like, sit around and huddle there and awkwardly talk about their new tile, their floor, or standing rainforest shower. And, like, what are you doing? Like, what is this? But it's very interesting that the film kind of, like, ties it back into those elements of it. And again, there's anti-consumer elements in them because there's literally multiple references to the band Black Flag. One of the twins wears it at the beginning, one of the carnival attendees the Whack-A-Mole begins it, the shirt is next to the Thriller shirt, so there's like three instances of that shirt being represented multiple times in the film. So I found that like a really interesting contrast between the two, between the family. There was an interesting Variety article um, uh, on the subject of specifically First Nations representation and the subtext around there, yeah, which just gets tied in, which you initially get the signal of, which is 
I forget what the uh, what the, there's a mystic uh, there's a mystic little like shaman. It's yeah. a shaman's uh, shaman's so, vision yeah, quest so, that she first yeah. stumbles into, and then when we cut back to it in the modern day. It's been upgraded to like Merlin's thing. So we've just essentially just like got, done a little like whitewash over like some yeah. racist history and like put a little new button on. But it's the same thing. Well, that's what I actually talked about in my first review. Is that like. It starts with the Shaman Vision Quest, which is Jordan Peele's cameo because he plays the voice in it, if you go back and rewatch it. Also, simultaneously, when it does get replaced, it's whitewashing, but it's also an element of genocide. But the interesting thing is, they pick Merlin to do Merlin's, like, Merlin's quest, right? Or Merlin's Enchanted Forest. So it goes from Shaman's Vision to Merlin's, and quest to Cat, Merlin's Enchanted Forest. What I find interesting about picking Merlin out of anybody is that, A, Merlin is an Anglo, like, an Anglo, very, like, Anglo-Saxon, white, pure blood kind of character built in, like, ancient Britannia, which founded it. And the most important thing about Merlin, he plays a key figure into not allowing the invasion of the Saxons to kind of happen, right? It's against invasion. And again, what America now is about this fear of invasion. We keep people coming into their borders and their countries and things like that. And of all the characters they picked up, they pick, could have picked Merlin. But the cool thing of that is when all the tethered do come up and she goes back into it, it's still Merlin the Forest, but they left. They yeah, brought the totem them. back. And you could see the totem back. And the thing is, you can't fully wash it. It'll always kind of be there, regardless oh, yeah, of what you no, do. I don't think there's any real aesthetic changes to the thing. They just kind of flip no, no, no. But like they got rid of the totem in the first. So in the first shot, there's a totem okay. and the flashback. It's gone when Thrilling the Chain of Fires and they go back. But when the tether come back and she goes in the third act, the totem returns, meaning that the cult like it'll always be there. Ah, you can't wash it over. And that's the interesting. There's multiple reference, like there's multiple layers to the idea of making it Merlin the Chain of Fires over the Shaman's Quest. Yeah. yeah, and certainly when you take talk about First Nations and you screen it anywhere, it's in Canada. We have not only like we don't only have this class dynamic. We have literally made made the others that we that our nation has exploited. We have completely geographically removed them from our areas of existence. Yeah. And so yeah, there's there's a number numerous levels of subtext in this film. When you just look at the metaphor of the of the horror, there's also a lot of social commentary just within the text itself. Yeah, between the when you talk about the dynamics between the two families, uh, just the very nature of having this well-to-do black family. That uh, essentially, um, it's not enough for them to just be in the father's eyes for them to be wealthy and well-to-do and to have really exceeded beyond, uh, really exceeded to like the peaks of mean. What you you no longer compare yourself to the people. You no longer compare yourself against the national average. You compare yourself against the families within your new circle. Yeah. And every time you advance, you go into a new circle, and, and then you and then you compare yourself to those references, and you're and you are never rich enough. In spite of this being a family that the dad has, like that has a cottage that the father wears a Harvard t uh, Harvard hoodie from, so you would assume Howard. Oh, Howard, excuse me, yes, Howard, Howard University. But again, an elite black black university. There's also the element of code switching that jumps in uh, when the father wants to protect his family from from the uh, from the uh, the tether that show up originally, and they don't know who it is. First comes out, certain degree of like the only type of speech we've heard from him so far ask them nicely to leave, comes back and all of a sudden yeah. switches. All of a sudden there's a little bit of a different language that like, yeah. I want y'all to get off my property now mm-hmm. and uh, and starts bringing out some black voice. Mm-hmm. Um, so all these things are in there as much, as mu- not just in like, uh, like, you know, academic metaphor and things like that. It's, it's right there. It's in the text and it's, a, there's a lot of thought in different aspects yeah. of it. Even to the like elements of just individual references in the film. I think Jordan Peele fast uh, admitted to the idea that like, because the tethered have one one glove, he just like as a cute reference tried to like feature every famous like cultural piece that's known for having one glove. So there's yeah. an OJ reference, a Michael Jackson reference, and a Freddy Krueger reference at some point. In the- and also like someone else, someone I know is also tied it to the '78 version of the Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where um, Leonard Nimoy's character also wears one glove. Oh, yeah. No, the film again. Another element I want to talk about the idea of like 
control and being tethered, this idea of wanting to be free and what is free will and capital, than when you're kind of controlled and dictated by certain things around you. Because in the beginning, the, the daughter mentions, oh, don't you know there's Florida in the water, Alex Jones said it or whatever, we're being controlled by it, then the cloning thing. But the thing is, throughout the film, people in subconscious are very sub in very subtle ways, are being referenced around the control. The daughter can't let her phone go. These people, the woman need a Botox, so she's clinging on to the idea of consumerism and youth, the idea of, like, keeping up a boat or keeping up the Joneses. We're still being controlled in an element, even though we want to keep a visage of free will. It's not necessarily free will. No one's, like, free in this kind of system, right? In particular with late stage capital. You're just as a slave, the ownership of something beyond you, which I think is something I want to talk about in Sleep With Anger as well. But that's what I found really interesting with the film. Like, what is control and what is free will and an element of late-stage capitalism where, like, you have to buy these goods to keep up with certain things. You have to buy these things up to keep a certain personality or a certain... You have a certain lifestyle or a certain way of living, so... Yeah, I think it yeah, gets yeah. into the circle to- topic. Yeah. Of every time you enter just a more narrow ring of the circle and then you just... But you no longer see all the all the different rings outside of you. It's just yeah. you're comparing yourself to that which is within your new circle. Yeah. Um, uh I guess the one thing I would like to talk about a little bit because we've, 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 tried, we've dissected as much as I can. One thing that I think is really important to talk about is the element of time, uh, which is, uh, we can talk about the timing of the film, but what I want to talk about is the amount of time that Jordan Peele spent developing this, which is, yeah. this is an idea that to get something to this level took took years, and he's talked about in the multiple different drafts, and the multiple different, there were multiple drafts for Get Out as well, and different plot lines that kind of came, got explored, got taken out in, in rewrites, and that's something that I think gets lost a lot in young writers when you read scripts. You get a first draft, and then you read the second draft, and it's like the first draft was some spelling corrections. Yeah. You don't see our, uh, you don't see a lot of young people who are trying to trying to develop stuff that are really willing to like write a draft, cut it apart, try something new, cut that draft apart, cut, try and do, and give themselves the years and the years and years it takes to get something that's really good. Mm-hmm. This does not happen by accident yeah. in like a short little vacuum where you do some cocaine and lock yourself in a bedroom. This this these films take work and yeah. they have a lot of thought in them. Yeah, nice. and I think it's I think it's easiest for us to look at the like the broad product and go like wow how yeah. how does something like this get done and like what a clear genius it is he is, but it's work. Yeah, it's a lot of work and I don't and I think what's been great about it is Jordan Peele has been pretty open about how how much work and how much time and thought gets put into these yeah. projects. They're, they do not happen in a vacuum. No, and it's, it's to have that many references, to have that many payoffs, to have a first act where everything kind of gets paid off and everything feels satisfactory, but also have a visual acume to kind of pull off some of the more some of the nice shots. Like that home invasion scene, all of it, the, between the framing and the composition and the camera movements and the camera angles, are just phenomenal to look at. And it's a certain element, like again, I keep harping on the idea of like spatial relationship kind of being lost in modern day filmmaking oh, yeah. because we work on a very two-dimensional flat where here the green screen <laughs> here the story where Tom Holland was talking about he was there with an Avengers and he was like on a green screen I don't know if it's a joke but I'm pretty sure it was true he was like talking to the director like who am I fighting he's like oh it doesn't matter you're just fighting somebody but he has like mimicked <laughs> the actions of fighting somebody but he didn't know who he was fighting uh-huh. he just had to like that's like a perfect encapsulation of it right like you exist in a very neutered very like closed off claustrophobic environment to make these sort of films and because of that that's what makes, again, the director like Spielberg so good. We've talked about this before, the idea of spatial relationship, using your whole location and then foreshadowing it so things happen around it and allowing those things to breathe. Well, it's, it's so important, and this is, I mean, it's so much more than a home invasion movie, but it is a home invasion movie for its, for its first act, yeah, for the, like, the culmination. Yeah. Where, like, yeah. yeah, but the idea of, like, once you, in order to have suspense in a thing, and you see this a lot in De Palma's, De Palma's work as well, is you have to know the space you're working in. 
Because then, when you're hiding with the characters, then you're checking that door. As an yeah. audience, you're checking that door. You're checking that door. Oh, yeah, like, Which corner are they coming yeah, from? Yeah. And you know and you know where people can come at you from. Yeah. And the, and the, your knowledge of the space gives you dread. If it's all clo- hard close-ups and, hard, and like, really tight angles, yeah. you have no frame of reference for what is happening. Thank God you brought this up. Sorry, you finished. <laughs> Are you done? Uh, <laughs> I would I would make one side observation, which I was just gonna talk from a camera's point of view. Jordan Peele uses almost no insert shots. He will use close-ups on actors, but yeah. whenever you are in the action, anytime like, and this is the thing in that movie that is a lot of stabbing, and you have like yeah. scissors getting held close. There's you never punch into like the scissors like right above the eye, right yeah. over there. He just he holds in his wides or holds in his mediums. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, no, it's God. We like I don't know what it is because now we grew up with like smaller and smaller screens where film is now on TV and Netflix, so we've over relied on how TV is being shot with over to close up. So I just watched um, Glass, right, with M. Night Shyamalan. Oh, yeah, go for it. It's like an awesome like. I mean, the film has many, many, many flaws, but the one thing I will give it credit for watching this film, like it is awesome to someone of like a visual competent literacy in terms of like you're talking about wides and longs. There's just shots in the film that are just composed. Where you feel it's almost carpenter-esque, right? These wides where certain things can come from a frame or a certain thing could happen. Because nowadays, you're right, there's way too many inserts and there are way too many close-ups. And I'm tired of, like, both of them. <laughs> Just stop it. Like, it's a visual medium, in a sense. Allow these certain things to happen in a frame. Allow something to walk in or allow it to linger or wonder what's in a corner. Like, Polanski was very good at that sort of stuff. John Carpenter was very good at stuff. Ford was very good at this. Like... I just, I hate the over-reliance on close-up nowadays on inserts, and it drives me nuts. And that's the one thing, I'll, again, I'll give both us and Glass credit for, is that there's a visual competency there that you can clearly tell they learn from older filmmakers and kind of incorporate it in their, in their own work, so. I want to look this up, because I think there's, a, they may be cinema, uh, the cinematographer might be by the same, uh, by the same cinematographer. It just doing a sense. quick look up. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, Because okay. it was, because it is, uh, it is, uh, the gentleman, his name is, uh, Mike, uh, Oh gosh, it's a it's not a generic white name, Geolacus Mike Geolacus. He is the cinematographer for It Follows. For who then did? Um, who, so I'm saying you know, Carpenter references. Carpenter references. It that follows, is a film yeah. that pulls very much from like the Halloween film. Was then picked up by Shyamalan to do Split and then Glass yeah. and worked with Jordan Peele on us. So kudos yeah, to Mike Geolacus. Yeah, he he probably, understands how to pull from a lot of like great old cinematographers and how to shoot suspense. No, there's almost there's a very much a Carpenter quality. In watching both us and watching, yeah, Glass. And that, that I will give her credit for. That I'm like, okay, cool. This is competency here I can respect and I enjoy immensely. I just think it's lovely that in order to, exa- to, uh, to exemplify good cinematography in this film, you referenced another film from the same guy. But yeah, it tell. shows why he's tell. getting work in the genre. No, you can tell. And when watching it, you're, it's very obvious. And yeah. Uh, yeah, so I don't know. There's many things I can say. Awesome music is great as well. The song selection oh, is great. Oh, gosh, yes. You're absolutely right. The, and the scoring stuff, it's, again, not your traditional stuff. This is someone who has seen a lot of stuff and is able to pull from a lot of different references. Yeah. To have, like, children's chorus kind of, uh, like, singing coming over a bunch of stuff for the suspense. Yeah. I can't even remember which the references. It reminded me loosely of Suspiria, but it's totally different than what Suspiria has yeah. for its score. No, there again, and we'll watch it again. We'll have different thoughts on it. But to me, like all the things with Alice in Wonderland were fascinating through the Looking Glass, the idea, Looking Glass, the idea of uh, capitalism and consumerism, and the idea of like whitewashing your own past and getting rid of the things, but not fully there. I felt was yeah all over the place. This the ties into anarchy and nihilism, with, not nihilism, but anarchy. With the Black Flag stuff, yeah, so remin- a lot reminiscent to, like, late 80s, early 90s, anti-Reganomic films, they live as well, so I think that's where he was kind of pulling this sort of, these sort of references from. 
Yeah. Absolutely. And and with all the references, it is still its completely unique and own thing. Yeah. And that is that is not the norm. And I mean, I don't want to bemoan as if like this is like, oh, we should get a film like this. Or, no, there's only so many people who really swing can swing this far outside the box. Mm-hmm. Most people kind of replicate the boxes they grew up on, and there's nothing wrong yeah. with that. We see a lot of good films that are reminiscent of other stuff. This is just really. This feels really unique. I don't think it's going to be the same like crowd pleaser that Get Out was. It's not quite as optimistic and as hopeful. It, I love that there's it's like a little that. more <laughs> indicting. Yeah, exactly. It went from like the optimism and did 180, and now has like that sort of ending. And they're both Blumhouse productions, Blumhouse productions that are in 20 million budget range, and they're both kind of done by the same photographer. So they kind of like probably a lot of like shifting in between certain things, right? So I found that fascinating. If that's Blumhouse's model, I, I, I'll be curious to know if they ever go with a film above 20 million and what that would do. I, they did Glass, and then Glass was no Glass is only 20 million. Glass is 20. I thought it was up to. I thought it was like in the late 20s, middle. I have heard, I've heard 20. Maybe you're right, but Glass does a lot with it. <laughs> does a lot with his budget, but simultaneously you could feel where like they needed more money for certain things. I'm curious to know what Bruce Willis kind of commanded for a, yeah. a paycheck for that film. It is impressive though that with essentially one film under his belt before this, Jordan Peele has essentially turned himself into like a name above title director that can that can sell. Yeah. almost any product. And there's only a few working today that are like that. You would think like Nolan, yeah. Tarantino, Steven Spielberg kind of has like that credit, but he doesn't really... Steven Spielberg does like big blockbusters now. It uh, doesn't really... Paul. Wes Anderson, Paul Dove. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Re- it's a really selective handful of that, full that are like guaranteed as mainstream draws. And, he also probably... And he deserves it. And he also probably the one who helped us get Black Klansman because at that point Spike... Lee wasn't getting the money, and he kind of kind of pitched it and told Blumhouse to do it, and he came on executive producer. Yeah, he kind of like helped guide that. So I think he brought Spike on. Yeah, for uh, for that one. So he's he's on quite a run. We're gonna have a Twilight. He's gonna have the do Twilight Zone coming out soon. No, not yet. I'm excited for it, but yeah. haven't, haven't. I went back and watched it early, some of the early 2000 stuff because I remember watching it back when it was on UPN, I think, and I watched some of the 80s version as well. The new one's pretty interesting. The first episode runs way too long, but you'll like the second one. It's like a Jordan P- Jordan Peterson xenophobic transplant uh yeah look at anything else you should watch it just i just can't believe they're gonna ruin the twilight zone by making it social and political (laughs) (laughs) okay well we're gonna zoom back past the mid-2000 we're gonna go back to 1990 the year of my birth uh happy birthday thank you i was uh i would have been five months old on october 12th 1990 when to sleep with anger came out a film directed by charles burnett starring danny glover and can I pitch to you for the synopsis of this one? Go not swing or swing to you. So toss it over to you. So Charles Burnett made a film called *To Sleep with Anger*, and *To Sleep with Anger* basically is about a middle-class African-American family in about South Central LA, wherever you want to call Crenshaw around that area. Is it South Central LA? It looks around there, yeah, it's Los Angeles, yeah. Like American but, South. No, no, because that's the entire problem. The crux of the film is about the film is about like these uh, this African-American family who migrated from the deep south and started oh, okay. a new urban and cosmopolitan lifestyle. But coming into that, they still have, like, frayed relationships because of certain, again, because of capitalism and consumerism. And, but they still try to keep their old way. They still believe in, like, tra- like tokens of just the like, good luck. So, like, the superstition can't go get some, like, a rabbit foot or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they keep chickens in their backyard. They cl- still are very religious. They still have elements of that old life. And what happens is a member, um, a person from their old life appears at the front door. His name is Harry. He's played by... Danny Glover, and you don't know if it's actually him or a representation of the devil or some sort of demon, and it causes everything to be torn asunder, and the family comes at odds and ends, and there's a whole ton of things to talk about with this film. To sleep with anger. What are your thoughts, Brendan? I... Don't say it, Brendan. I found this film very... 
very boring. And I really want to like it. And I just, I just struggled and I didn't finish it. It just, I kept wanting to fall asleep. The Part of it was the cinematography. Part of it, I think, was just how it sets up its first act. And where Get Out, I thought, succeeded so well was it set up its premise, it revealed its characters, and gave, us a po- and gave the audience a point of view into the family. And this film didn't give me that. It had a lot of half scenes that didn't feel like they really revealed a lot of character. I couldn't tell you who these people were, and then Danny Glover's character shows up. And we got a lot of scenes of people talking, and, uh, but not necessarily felt like there was a lot of stuff moving and developing. So I, I want to <laughs> see the rest of this film. I just, it actually just kind of just lulled me completely, and I was exhausted tonight and didn't, I couldn't do it. But it's, it feels like the type of film that has like a lot of interesting ideas and takes way too long to get to them. That was my takeaway from trying, trying this film out. I'm going to stand. Mm-hmm. Just sleep with anger. To stand. I'm going to stand in support of it. I stand S T A N D. No, like S T A N. Yeah, I'm gonna. Okay, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a standing for to sleep with anger. So I've known about this one for years, and I've always like kind of pushed it back in my mind, like oh I should watch it, but I should probably watch it. So I'm like I'll watch it now. Uh, Criterion finally released a nice digital crisp of it. It's kind of been forgotten about. Like the late '80s, early '90s, up until the mid '90s was an amazing time for African American filmmakers. They came out with so many iconic films, and this one kind of. Whistled Away, which what was unfortunate. Kind of like I... Boys in the Hood. Okay. Uh, there is also, oh my God, Spike Lee. Do the Right Thing. Why am I like... Right, Do the Right Thing was that this year. Uh, Malcolm X. There's a couple of other. Oh, Julia Dash is the Daughters of the Dust. Um, oh my God, the other one is like Boys in the Hood. Um, oh my God, why am I forgetting this? There's another film very reminiscent to Boys in the Hood that also came out the year. The John Singleton and the Gary Brothers. John Singleton, I feel like he did like a handful of things and then it kind of... Yeah. And then Eve Bayou in the 90s as well. Like, there's that, didn't t- get, yeah. that didn't become iconic, though, unfortunately. But, like, so there were still some elements of those kind of films in that era that became very popular. My God, why am I... Fun- like, there's Boys Boys in the Hood, and there's another one in there that I'm completely forgetting that, are ve- that is very reminiscent to it as well. That's okay. It'll come to me. To sleep with anger, so. Yeah, it'll come to me. But I really, 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 really love this film. And for a multiplicity of reasons. It's almost a continuation of kind of the scenes that he did in Sleep with Anger. Not Sleep with Anger, but, like, Killer of Sheep about a guy who's working in a slaughterhouse and how his... What he does as a living in terms of a capitalistic sense to murder these animals is an extension of who he is and the byproduct of being in capitalism because what you do is your job and some people ask you that sort of thing and how it kind of dehumanizes them and how to live in like a capitalistic world. And this film kind of has those elements stretched out because what I find fascinating is how topical this film nowadays is to people and elements nowadays. And what I mean by that is that this film is, yes, about Harry coming to his family and kind of subverting things and destroying things and kind of throwing everything to thunder. There's lots of biblical references in terms of Gideon. The brothers in this film can be kind of looked at Cain and Abel. I don't know if you kind of finished it. The idea of the trumpet with the kid and the neighbor being played in the background. But to me, what I want to focus on is the identity of one of the kids. So he has two sons, his baby brother and the junior. Baby brother, ironic, is like the youngest brother in the family. And the issue is that his relationship is kind of frayed with his family on a capitalistic and self-determinist sense, he's not succeeding at his ailment, so he thinks of himself so he's very insecure in that regard. He asks, because he tells his dad he'll pay his own way, his dad says, says since when. He doesn't go to his mother's birthday because he couldn't afford a present. He doesn't. He goes at one point, literally cries to his dad to teach him how to make money so he could kind of live like a normal human being in a capitalist world because there's a crushing sense in it, in particular with kids nowadays who want who've been taught over and over again your identity is what you make and how you make it and how much you make it and anything lesser means you're lesser of human being. So what's really interesting is this character kind of becomes 
under the influence of Harry. He's like this old world way who kind of brings him under his tutelage, under his wing, gives him influences and corrupts him. And the interesting thing about that is it's, I, not, I'm not equating capitalism to slavery, but the idea of these two systems that kind of control the African-American experience and leave them with a lack of identity and purpose and is still kind of other thumb pressed down on them. Because any lesser film would have had that shot, would have had Baby Brother kind of be influenced by drugs or gangs or gets into illicit activity in South Central LA and get into gun activity, uh, gang activity, or, and get, do very dangerous, very criminal things. But the film doesn't do that. It subverts that trope. What happens is he goes under the tutelage of the old way of thinking, this old South way of thinking, this character Harry who brings him out. And the film is all about that, trying to find that identity and purpose when you don't have it in the capitalistic sense and how you feel unfulfilled, you don't have a purpose. And again, you go back to old ways of thinking, very dangerous, very lethal ways of thinking. And you can, again, tie this back to like a lot of modern-day like white people who live on the internet. Like Their purpose has kind of been neutered. They go back to these old ways of thinking of like white supremacy and crusade and white, like white genocide, this fear of finding a purpose, and that's their purpose, because capitalism didn't provide them that purpose, which is very reminiscent to what that, that brother suffers. And that's what I find really interesting. One of the elements, and one of my favorite parts about this film, is right at the beginning. There's a kid, and I think this is like the mo one of the most important shots of the film, or one of the most important scenes. There's a kid playing a trumpet in the beginning, and these kids are heckling him on the streets and they're playing basketball with a ball while they're yelling at him. Though That, to me, works in two levels. One, it's about, like, the old culture, trumpet, which is, like, music and all that jazz being siphoned away by the new, which is basketball. Because this film was made right around the time where Showtime Lakers were just about ending and the global ascension of uh, Michael Jordan. Yeah, it's when basketball became a pro pro prolific, very well-known entity, one of the largest sports in the world. And what that works is on two levels. It shows like the very limited avenues of what African-Americans could have for upward mobility. One, which was music in like the 1900s, about to the 1950s and 1960s, and what it was presently at that time in the 90s, which was basketball. And it works on two levels in the way, I think, because Harry is scared of that kid, because the kid is learning something that is not to better himself in a monetary sense, but to better enrich himself in a soulful sense, in a cultural sense, by learning that, that trumpet, and by learning it, and by finding something to find identity outside of that system, which I found really cool. But it's also, yeah, about the culture being left, and how that scene ends is with doves being literally released, as in peace will leave, and then Harry shows up. There's so many of these small... Wait, that happens before Harry shows up? Right before Harry shows up, yeah. I was so disengaged from yeah, this Yeah, so I found these elements fascinating with the film, but like what it talks about, because he's brought this kind of continuously again, and it's also an element in, in Killer Sheep as well. Like, what is capitalism, and what is the purpose of it if you're not living fully in it? And because for the African-American, mobility is even harder to come by. Having capitalistic excellence, achieving yourself in a monetary way, is infinitely more difficult in America, and kind of like what us also talks about. So I found that fascinating in the film that looks at that, and we'll find dangerous avenues to find purpose, because the issue isn't about evil, it's about finding a way out of a certain element, and how capitalism probably isn't the answer to these sort of things. And Killer Sheep explores that as well, and so does this film. And so yeah, the end of the film is, well, I don't know if you guys the end of it, I'm not going to spoil it, but... No, go for it. Uh, Harry dies, the bureaucratic people can't get him out of the living room, so the body's just lying there for like days, almost... Dang, Harry? Yeah, he just okay. dies, he gets like a heart attack, because the family kind of like negates him. So he just lies in the middle of like the floor and they just awkwardly are walking around with his body sort of thing and they kind of like walk over him and like when is someone going to go pick him up? Like we can't sit here let's go have a picnic. So the kid leads a procession with his like trumpet leading the family away from like the old ways and temptations with like his purified ways and not looking at capitalist ways. It leads the family with like faltering trumpet which is fascinating and the idea of again the trumpet faltering at the beginning is about like the old ways faltering and being 
awoken by something new, the basketball, the new culture, the new capitalism, the new ways. So those are the cool things about this film that I was like looking at him like, oh, this is really fascinating to watch because there's a lot he wanted to say. The visual aesthetic I love. There's almost a Bergman quality with the family in the monologue. Uh, there's very like the lighting is very naturalistic, but high family ties quality. But yeah, and also like the beginning with like the burning stuff and the dream surrealistic seems like a deleted scene out of some bizarre thing of Twin Twin Peaks, like very Lynchian when he's having that night when they have a nightmare, he's clutching the Bible and the shoes catch on fire. Everything just seems off about it. But yeah, I don't know. I really like the film. So those are that's why I liked it. Just what the film had to say about that. And it's unfortunate Charles Burnett didn't do more. But now I want to see this film he makes. Maybe it'll bring back to the limelight. Same thing now with, um, oh my god, Cassie Lemon's making the Harry Tubman movie, which maybe will bring her back as well, hopefully. Well, I can say with confidence after hearing your impassioned uh, description of what comes in the film and some of the subtext of it, I feel no regret in not finishing it. Yeah. It sounds like something I would entirely not enjoy. Okay. And did not enjoy the first 35 minutes at all. Yeah. <laughs> So next week we are covering Shazam, and we're going to Glover performance by far. You, I've ever seen. You have to have material to work with for it to, be, oh, to matter to me. But sorry, so yeah, sorry, go on. I was just going to say we have Shazam, and what are we pairing it with? It was called what? Star Child or Star, Star Kid? Is Star it? Ki- oh my god! I think so. Let me double check really quickly. Star Kids. Yes, 1997 Star Kids. With the lead as the kid from Jurassic Park, the one that gets shocked by the electric fence whose name I do not know. Uh, Joseph Mazzello. If you don't respond to the name, if you don't know the name, you're not alone. You just know, know the kid from Jurassic Park. Star Kid. It is a film that we have nostalgia for because we sort of remember vaguely <laughs> seeing trailers for it and it occasionally playing on the movie network. So Shazam and Star Kid from 1997. Um, we will also be doing a episode on Pet Cemetery, and we'll be playing a game of King of the Hill with, hopefully, uh, Jay Clark. Yeah, so King of the Hill essentially is, uh, we're going to take the best of, not the worst, but the forgotten of Stephen King films, and kind of debate to each of us which are our favorite of it. So we got movies like The Night Flyer, I think Graveyard Shift, Return to Salem Lot, uh, The Sinner, and The Mangler. So if you've not heard of any of these Stephen King films... That would be the podcast for you. For you. We can do all of that. All right. Thank you for listening, guys. See you next week. Yeah.